The best day for a preacher is the day you start a new series. The second best day is the day you finish the series. And so today we're starting a a, a new series in the gospel according to Mark. Mark is right after in the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark. You go from a really long New Testament book to a very short one, only 16 uh, chapters. Uh, But most uh, scholars believe Mark is the first of the four Gospels written about uh, 30 years after Jesus uh, uh, lived and died and rose again. So about 30 years later, about the late 50s, early 60s, uh, Mark sat down and wrote this. We know it's uh, before about uh, 62, 63, because that's when Peter dies. And Peter is the source of most of the writing that is in uh, Mark. In fact, almost all of it, because Peter is present in every event that's recorded in Mark, unlike the other Gospels. We also know it's probably one of the earliest writings uh, because 95% of the Gospel according to Mark appears in Matthew and Luke. And so probably the writers of Matthew and Luke sat down with Mark's writing and just expanded it from there, used the same uh, uh, a series of events, but because there are more witnesses uh, to the events, they would uh, be uh, em- not embellished, but further explained in ways that uh, uh, Peter's recollections uh, probably don't. Matter of fact, we have a writer around AD 130, so we're probably uh, uh, 50, 60 years after Jesus, no, after when it's written, says this. He says that uh, Mark gave a careful account of all that Peter remembered about Jesus. That's about 1.30. Uh, uh, he's the bishop of Heriopolis, which is uh, a city that doesn't exist anymore, but he wrote down that by 1.30, everybody accepted that John Mark was the writer of the gospel according to Mark but he got his information because John Mark was too young. He's the young guy in Acts, I mean in Mark 14, who uh, sees Jesus arrested and runs away, dropping his cloak, so he, dro- he runs away naked. Very young man. He's also the, the young man that uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts uh, 13 uh, take along on their missionary journey. And then later, Barnabas and Paul have a discussion about whether to take Mark because about halfway through that trip, uh, John Mark got scared and went home. And so uh, Paul says, I'm not taking him. Barnabas says, I will. And so as they go out on their next missionary journey, uh, Paul takes uh, Timothy and Titus and, and uh, Barnabas takes John Mark. And so that's kind of who... And about when it was written, but why was it written? Why was the gospel according, why was any gospel written? Well, the, again, this is about 30 years after Jesus died and resurrected. So the original eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and what Jesus did are starting to die off. That first generation are dying. As you can, can imagine, they're in their 60s and 70s now, and some maybe even older than that. 
And so uh, uh, John Mark wants to give an account before, from the eyewitnesses, before it's all gone, before they're gone. And, and, and some of the story, some of the events, some of the teaching will be lost forever. And so Peter was there. Peter's an eyewitness. So John Mark sat down uh, over a period of time and got this information. You don't get a lot of Jesus' teaching in uh, uh, the gospel according to Mark, you, but you get tons of action. In fact, the most there are two words that you see in Mark repeated over and over again. One is and. It's almost like um, somebody's telling a story, and the way they tell the story, and we did this, and then we went there, and then we did this, and then we did that. You see that all throughout the gospel according to Mark. The other one, word that is repeated over and over again is the word immediately. It says they did this, and then immediately they did this. And sometimes they'll bring both those words together and immediately to show you the rapid. It, again, it, it's almost like Mark said, okay, tell me everything, everything you got, uh, Peter, and I'm just going to write down as fast as I can. And he just gets the big events. And, and it's almost communicated that way to us. Preserving for us the real Jesus. It's not long. In fact, already by the time the gospel according to Mark is being written, myths and legends are starting to grow about Jesus. Already in the 30 years since his death, Already, myths and legends about Jesus are already happening. And so getting this down for future generations keeps us away from making stories up and things about Jesus that aren't true. And so this is our opportunity to get at the real Jesus. And our generation in the 21st century needs a real Jesus. Because, quite frankly, we've already got myths and legends and pictures of Jesus that aren't true. And so what we hope in the gospel, according to Mark, we're going to get two questions answered for us. And what's really neat about the gospel, according to Mark, is it's divided in half between these two questions. The first question that Mark will seek to answer for us, and this is the way he organizes the book, is who is Jesus? And he delivers that he is the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he introduces. And now I understand, in the 21st century, we've got two problems with a king. One, we don't have one. We borrow the English every now and then, and we keep up with the latest, with the Prince Harrys and all of them. Uh, My guess is our founding fathers would not be happy with the way in which we keep up with the royals from England. You remember, we had this big war to get independence from the king. But because we have a distance from the king, we don't have an appreciation for a king. The other is you and I live in the Western world where we want independence. We don't want a boss over us. We don't want a supervisor. We don't want a lord. And because of those twin problems, we tend to skip over the first eight chapters that Jesus is king. Oh, we'll read them. We will... We won't like it near as much as the second question or the second half of the book, which answers the question, why did he come? What did he come to do? And the answer to that question is go to a cross. The king came to die. All kings die, but this king came for that purpose, to die for you, to die for his people. 
And the reason that's upside down is that every king requires the people to die for him. Only this king came to die for the people. And so with that in mind, let me read just the first 13 verses to us as our introduction. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, he immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and I, and with you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. May God help us to understand this, his word. John 10 often says, not often, it does say this. It says that my sheep know my voice, they hear it, and they follow me. The problem with that verse and that voice is that often the scriptures describe it as a still small voice almost a whisper, and that there are louder and more frequent voices that we tend to hear and follow. One, uh, a voice that comes to us is from our own culture. It tells you that if you don't look out for yourself, no one will, so eat, drink, and be merry. Another uh, voice from the the culture is is that if you're not a success, then you must be a failure. Those are the only two options in our culture. If the culture defines success this way and you don't meet that standard, then the only conclusion that can be made is that you're a failure. And a failure in our culture is a nobody. Many grew up with voices in your home of a parent or a sibling or a friend who said you were a nobody, you were no good, you were not smart. And those are the voices that you have heard and has been told over and over again in your mind. And there's one more voice, more very powerful voice, and that's your own voice. The things you tell yourself, the things that you hear are the things that you believe most. And sadly... It's the one that rings the loudest to our hearts. Our text is going to give us three voices. It's going to give us three voices, and if we'll listen to these three voices, it'll change everything about us. The first voice comes into the wilderness. Look at verse 2 again. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The first voice is John the Baptist out in the wilderness. But he's not the only voice in the wilderness. There's another one down in verse 12. We see Jesus going out in the wilderness. It says that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And so the first question we have to answer is, what is a wilderness? Is he, is he talking metaphorically or physically? I think he's talking about both. Yes, I, I think there's a, a physical uh, a, a wilderness, both uh, for uh, John's baptism and then also for Jesus' experience. It's a, a wild place. It says there's uh, wild animals there. It's a, it's a place that cannot sustain life for very long. It's a place of great thirst and not always just for water. It's a place of terrible loneliness and isolation and rejection. And quite frankly, you and I will die there if there's not an intervention. You know, I don't have to convince you what a wilderness is because everybody has been in a wilderness. It's a common experience that every human has that we go into the wilderness because different things put us in that wilderness. Sometimes it's the sin of others. Sometimes it's our own sin. Just simply we live in a broken world, but it ends in a place that we feel alone and isolated. It's a place where we feel rejected. It's a place where we thirst for life, connection, salvation. We all have those wildernesses. Sometimes that, that wilderness is put there because of, of a divorce, sometimes by a death. Sometimes it's simply because of an addiction. Sometimes it's just something that, uh, that we have done and, and, and because it's been a repeated uh, sin pattern, it, it isolates us. Some of it is because we don't want to be found, but ultimately it's because we're afraid if we're found out, nobody will like us. It's a place where we need an intervention or we're going to die. Ironically, it's the wilderness that Jesus goes into. He goes into every wilderness because he goes into his own wilderness. Because without Jesus, no one can get out of the wilderness. And we don't really begin to realize that until we really realize, I cannot save myself. The next thing that John the Baptist tells us is that we're to prepare a way. To prepare a way, did you notice how Mark addresses Jesus in verse 1. He calls him the Christ. The reason that's important is because he's harking back to the Old Testament where Jesus or the coming of the, uh, of, uh, of the Son of God will be called what? He'll be called the Messiah. And, and there's a period of time where they begin to see that the Messiah who was going to come because they had been subjugated and oppressed by first by the Persians and then by the Assyrians and then, uh, I mean the Assyrians and then by the Egyptians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. For 400 years they have this experience. And so they're longing for a warrior king. 
who will come and free them from all of their oppressors because they haven't had a king. They haven't had a ruler. And they want a divine, royal, beautiful king. And so right at the very beginning of the gospel according to Mark, Mark launches out that the king that you've been wanting, the king that you've been longing for, the one that's going to free you from your oppressors, he has come. The Son of God has entered into our wilderness of this world for us. That's why he quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 2, because Isaiah 40 is about this divine king who's going to come and, and make us free. He says, prepare the way. Well, what's the way of the king? He's referring to this highway between the throne, the capital city where the king sits upon his throne and out into his kingdom. We tend to think that the kings went everywhere, but they didn't. They built a highway that connected major cities of a kingdom. And the highway was uh, a more level, more smooth for the king to ride on so he can have easy travel to these cities within his kingdom. And that highway was called the king's way. And that's what everybody was supposed to prepare the way for, to come out, remove the rocks, make it easy for this guy that might be on some kind of chariot uh, carried from one city to the next. But where is that king, Jesus, going that we're supposed to prepare the way? It's to the cross. The king's highway goes right from birth to a cross where he dies. That's the amazing thing that he's asking us to prepare the way. Because it's because he goes to the cross that we can be forgiven. That's why it's called repent for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism for what? It's a washing clean of the stains of sin that have been on us. And it is just a metaphor, a a picture of what Jesus does on the cross, that he dies for our sins so that both guilt and power of sin can be removed from our lives. That's what Augustus Toplady is getting to in that hymn, Rock of Ages, where he says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood, he's talking about the death on the cross, from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. What's the double cure? Cleanse me from its guilt and power. We're going to look more at that next week because that's really where Mark takes us into repentance and believing in the gospel and following him. But I want you to hear the second voice because it is also important. Instead of a voice in the wilderness, it's a voice from heaven. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And so the question is, if John's baptisms were for the repentance of sins that we have done, why is Jesus submitting to John's baptism? If Jesus didn't commit any sins, why is he having a baptism? Well, to understand that, you have to understand baptism is not a New Testament idea. There are a number of baptisms in the Old Testament. And one of the Old Testament baptisms was done way back 
when Moses took Aaron and his sons and baptized them into the priesthood. And ever since that baptism, whenever a new person became from, from Aaron's a stock, became a priest, he would be baptized in the ministry at age 30. That's in Deuteronomy. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's getting ready to begin his ministry as our high priest. And so he's asking John, who comes from the family to come and baptize him into this priesthood because it says in other texts like Matthew and Luke, it says immediately he comes up out of the water and begins his ministry. But let me read you two pieces of of Scripture from Hebrews that enlightens what's happening here. In Hebrews 2.17 it says, Therefore he, talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect he's like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So here it's saying that Jesus is our high priest in the service of God. For what reason? Verse 17 says, To make a propitiation, a payment for the sins of the people. Jesus becomes the high priest so that he can make a sacrifice, so that he could pay for the sins of his people for all time, once for all. Okay, that's why he got baptized, so that he could be the high priest that would make the ultimate sacrifice. But what's that sacrifice? Hebrews 7, 27 tells us. He, Jesus, has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. You see, everybody in the Old Testament that's a priest all the way up to Jesus' time, would have to make a sacrifice for his sins, and then, once he's done that, turn around and make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was sinless. But then he goes on and says, since he did this once for all, when he offered himself up. Do you hear what he's saying? John is baptizing into the ministry of the high priest so that he could offer the sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven. So we could be washed clean of the guilt and the power of sin in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice is himself. John is baptizing the final high priest who will make the final sacrifice for us. That's why he's being baptized. And then it says immediately, verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Many children today never hear a parent say to them, You are my child with whom I am well pleased. Many fathers want to say that. That's the intention of their hearts. But they get so tongue-tied or embarrassed to say the words, I love you, I am well pleased with you, that it is never sad. Others grow up and hear fathers say the opposite with angry words 
and rejection. Can I tell you what a Christian is? I know you're wondering, because you're wondering whether you are. It is someone God says this to. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You see, a lot of people know that God loves them. There's verses that say that. For God, what? So loved the world. Everyone knows the verse. All you have to do is say 316 and people know. Then Romans, God demonstrated his own love toward you in that while you were still an enemy of his, he died for you because he loved you. Or what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. We know those. But do you know if God likes you? You know, it's kind of like a a sibling. I know I love my brother and sister, but I don't like them. Is that how you feel God looks at you? That he loves you, he just doesn't like you. That's why this is so important, this voice from heaven. Because you are in Christ. When he says, you are my child, with whom I am well pleased, it's not because he's looking at you and your record. He's looking at Christ and his, that you now have. When the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. And you say, but Bruce... You don't know what I've been doing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, that's the reason he says it. It's because whatever you have done, in Christ, your Father is well pleased that he is rejoicing over you. The way the Irish put it, he's doing a jig over you because you are his with whom he is well pleased. One of the things that I loved about Tim Kate, for years Tim and I taught fifth grade boys at vacation Bible school. And some of you were in the room that had Tim as a teacher during vacation Bible school. But one of the things that he wanted to make sure that these Boys who had way more energy than anybody should have. If we could ever tap that, we would not worry about our electric bills. It's one of the reasons we would take them outside, so they weren't bouncing so much off the walls. But one of the things that he wanted them to understand is how much God loved them and what he had done for them because he loved them. And that he not only loved them, but he also liked them. One of the things that I really love about uh, John and, and Megan's ministry and Nikki and Casey and Jackson's ministry to students, along with uh, Stephen and uh, Frankie's ministry to college students, is that, that what's, what you, they want you to know. There are a lot of things that they'll teach, but the one thing they want you to walk away with is that God in heaven is your Father And he loves you, and he's well-pleased.
If you don't walk away with anything else from our ministry, know that. Because you are going to walk into your own wildernesses. And if you don't know that, you will thirst to death. One more unexpected voice. It comes from a place that you and I don't realize. In verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel is being proclaimed to us as we read it. As we read the gospel according to Mark together, week after week, as we walk through this, the gospel is being proclaimed to us through the voice of Mark. And he's going to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. He's going to tell us that because Jesus came, he forgave our sins and washed us clean. He's going to tell us that you are my child and with whom I am well pleased. But do you know something? That's not the unexpected voice of this text. The unexpected voice of this text is yours. It's mine. Whenever we tell someone else who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that he has come for the forgiveness of sins, that they don't have to stay in their wilderness, that he's come to rescue them out of their wilderness, you are a voice in the wilderness. Their wilderness. Every time. People, both inside and outside the church, are in their wilderness. And in their wilderness, it feels so alone and so isolating. So nobody experiences what I experience. Nobody struggles with what I struggle with. Will you enter their wilderness and tell them? Will you tell them that Jesus forgives them? That's why he came. Will you tell them that Jesus has done for them so that he could forgive them? Will you tell them that God rejoices over them? Even if they're broken. And will you tell them that their Father in Heaven sees them as His child with whom He is well pleased? Because that is freedom. Who in this room, here's your application, who in this room do you need to be a voice in their wilderness? Who do you know in this room is that in, that's in their wilderness and that you need to go in and say these things? I know the temptation is to tell them all the things and how to fix them, how to get it right. But really, this is what they need because this is the power to walk out of the wilderness. Who out there, when you leave this place and everybody is about to, I know you're beginning to notice. When you walk out of this room, who's out there that are living in the wilderness that you need to go into and tell them that Jesus has forgiven them and that he's made a way to come out of the wilderness into his kingdom? Will you go to them? And will you go to them today? Let's pray. Father, 
We need, we need that voice from heaven to not only, obviously, you said that to Jesus, but you also say that to us and from us to others. Let us be your voice crying out into the wilderness of people that you entered in your wilderness to rescue us from ours. Help us go into those wildernesses and speak this good news. That you see them and us as your children with whom you are well pleased because of Christ. Help us do that as a church, as individuals, both inside the church and outside the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.